I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, with Dr. Florence by him Weinberg. She's the author of 16 books. Her latest is uh, uh, aptly named, and it has nothing to do with the issue, but the choice. How about that? How about that for, uh, uh, for uh, <laughs> foreshadowing? And before that, it was before the Alamo, but... Uh, let me tell you, The Choice is is a great book. Please get both of these books. She's the subject of a documentary. She was the subject of a an extensive, an extensive uh, radio series prior to becoming her own host, and uh, the, uh, the the documentary she's wonderful in, and everything else. But let's uh, introduce, without further ado, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. Doc, how are you? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Well, how, let me In ask. suspense about the uh, the Supreme Court and what they're going to do yeah. uh, about abortion, of course, which yeah. is what I'm going to talk about eventually this 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 time. Yeah. Well, I was going to say to you, how's the Supreme Court doing? Never mind how you're doing. How's the Supreme Court doing? Are you shocked by this? Uh, yes, I'm. In a way, I am. Uh, I was afraid it was going to happen because of the uh, the fact that the court is stacked with judges who, uh, although they lied, uh, essentially by omission, by uh, evasion, uh, during their Supreme Court, not Supreme Court, their uh, Senate hearings, um, uh, I was afraid that all of them were uh, intending to uh, to destroy uh, Roe v. Wade all along, and sure enough, they did it. But uh, the the fact that that it was that it is so imminent, and we have a 108-page draft of the decision uh, by one of them, uh, is shocking. Uh, even even though you expect it, it still it still hits you very hard. Yeah, amazing. It's just I I just I never thought we'd see the day. To be honest with you. I just did yeah, it. me too. Yeah. Did it in a you know it's a roundabout way, I guess, by um, by allowing the states to choose, uh, but we know how certain states are going to uh, decide, right? I mean, the southern states and some midwestern states, even Florida. Florida uh, will most likely your state of Texas. Forget it. We don't even have to guess. We don't even have to speculate where the vote is going to go there, right? I mean, it's going to be yours are going to be a, a pro-life state. Yeah, well, it it, uh, it already is uh, in, in essence. Yeah. So, women are already leaving the state in order to get uh, get health health yeah. treatments. Uh, not not necessarily abortion, but all the clinics are are closing down. And so they uh, and of course Oklahoma just uh, went pro life also imitating the laws of Texas. Uh, so since the Supreme Court allowed Texas to get away with this draconian law that allows uh, citizens to report and sue uh, people who either uh, have the abortion or uh, those who drive them to get the abortion or advise them about it, I mean, it is the worst uh, possible law that you can imagine because it, it turns all the citizens uh, into informants, so pot- uh, potential informants uh, on their neighbors. In other words, uh, everybody can do dirty work uh, for the state which is uh, naturally led by the Republican Party at the moment and has been for quite a long time since uh, Ann Richards was governor of the state, and that was back in the 90s, the early 90s. Anyway, um, yes, what I want to talk about today is my own experience with an abortion, not my own, but I aided and abetted an abortion, and that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it, it, I know the story, and it is unbelievable. It is a, it's I, I think it's a heroic uh, young Florence in action here. And I know you don't. That's not your purpose of telling this story. But <laughs> no, it's, it, I, I, boy, if 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 you were my daughter, I would, uh, knowing what you had to go through as a young, twenty-one, I believe, right, twenty-one-year-old Florence. Twenty-one, yes. Yeah, well, go ahead. Let me not spoil. Please, yeah, please tell the story. 
Okay, I will partly tell it and partly read it because it's part of my memoir. Uh, So it's an excerpt from my memoir, but to uh, prepare you for it, uh, I was in graduate school at Iowa, uh, the University of Iowa, in Iowa City at the time. I had started school early, and so I was Uh, I was 20 years old when I finished college. Most people are at least 22. And I started graduate school at 20, and my birthday is on the 3rd of December. So I was just barely 21 when this happened. It probably happened along, and I would imagine, since there was no snow on the ground, thank God, uh, probably in March, possibly early April. But in Iowa... Uh, winters are long and severe, probably less so now, or maybe they're maybe they're even worse. Who knows? But uh, so I was probably 21 plus two or three months, and I had rented a room. In those days, graduate students did not have any university housing prepared for them, where they could rent a room for very little. They had to look for room. Uh, rooms to stay in while they studied out in the town. And I had rented a room in a great big Victorian house. Uh, I think it was, on, uh, it was on Pinnacle Hill or some such uh, name in uh, Iowa City, which is a very small town, especially in the uh, summertime. In the winter, it swells enormously by, uh, because the university is huge. But in any case, I found a room in this uh, huge house with, uh, oh, who knows, 15 rooms or more. And uh, uh, the the upstairs rooms were all taken, all by women. Uh, The house was owned by uh, an invalid woman. She could still walk around, but but she mainly was uh, lying in bed. But anyway, she, uh, she rented me a room downstairs. Uh, where I stayed and studied and walked back and forth to school, which was quite a distance. It was downhill across the river on and, and up the hill on the other side. So uh, the other women in the house were mainly professional women, secretaries and so on, uh, some kind of businesses. Maybe they ran a small business. Uh, in any case, one of them was a nurse. She was an LPN, which meant that she did not have her nursing degree. And she was a hunchback. She was very much hunched over and leaned forward and smaller than she should be as an adult and small boned. And her name was Millie. And she was a very courageous and interesting person. She had been pretty much isolated by the other women. Uh, None of us really did much socializing because we were gone all day and wanted to use our our, uh, after work or after school hours for, in my case, for studying and they for other things. But in any case, she was a lonely person. And I, uh, I got to know her. She was helpful. Uh, I was, as I say, 21 and uh, pretty green when it came to uh, uh, living alone and cooking for myself and uh, having the right dishes and so on. And she advised me on all that, and we got to be fairly friendly. And I admired her her courage uh, uh, for working and supporting herself. So... um, She was obviously the one of the women that I liked best because she was outgoing, she was witty, uh, and one evening she came to see me and asked for my help. What had happened was that at work in the hospital, uh, she worked at the university hospital, uh, she uh, had become friendly with one of the janitors, who was a Down syndrome person, and early I think they called him. He had taken a shine to her, and she had comforted him, or they had comforted each other uh, a little too well, and she was pregnant. Yeah. And she 
she worried, first of all, uh, just carrying the baby to term in her physical shape with narrow hips and and probably weak bones and so on and so forth uh, might have been fatal for her to begin with. And she was also afraid, since she was deformed, uh, that the baby might be deformed or might be mentally, uh, mentally retarded, as uh, the father was. Uh, and so she, uh, she was thinking of abortion. Uh, but uh, furthermore, she had no means of caring for a child. She had only enough money, barely, to care for herself. So she was trapped, and she felt forced to have an abortion. But unfortunately, in the United States, this was 1954 or 55, probably 55, uh, in the United States in those days, abortion was universally illegal, and so she would be arrested, and her physician uh, or the midwife or wh whoever was performing the abortion also would be arrested. So um, she apologized to me, but she told me she had no other recourse. Uh, she had no car, and she could not drive. She, so she couldn't even rent a car and drive, uh, but she had consulted with the doctors in the hospital, and uh, one of them had taken pity on her and had slipped her the information about a doctor who was willing to perform such an operation. And the appointment was the following evening, which was a Friday evening, in St. Paul, Minnesota, which was... 220 miles away, hmm. and it was set for 8 o'clock that night, and to get there, you had to, uh, to get there on time, we would have to leave the next day at 4 in the afternoon. Um, in those days, there were no high-speed highways either, because that was the era before interstate highways, before Eisenhower. Hmm. Well, I knew that Millie had no one else who would or could help, and so I agreed I would drive her there. So we spent the four-hour trip to St. Paul talking in spurts about our lives, exchanging confidences, of course, and Millie explained how she came to be pregnant, her despair at ever being able to accomplish anything as a hunchback without relatives. She was by herself in the world and without anyone who was willing to support her or care about her. She couldn't afford to take off work for more than a couple of days or she would lose her job, which was her only means of survival. She was also saving money to take courses to qualify for a nursing certificate. Uh, and uh, if, if she could get one, that would mean a better salary. Of course, women were also paid about half what men were paid in those days, and they're still paid about three-quarters of what men are paid. <laughs> we're one of the most retarded countries in the world in that regard. Yeah, right. But paying for abortion uh, would set her plans back severely. She had, she had saved money, uh, obviously, for, uh, for her studies, but she was going to have to sacrifice it for the abortion. And I, if I had had any money, I would have given her some, but I was just barely making it myself. So uh, so the only help I could offer her was transportation. Well, we arrived in St. Paul close to 8 o'clock, so close to the hour of the appointment. And we entered a circle around the city where there was light industry and warehouses and small businesses and one-story buildings that lined the streets. And it was a poor neighborhood. Street lights were very seldom, very few. And Millie knew exactly where to go. She guided me to a string of small businesses that were all closed and dark. So they were little convenience stores and little groceries and things. And she asked me to stop in front of one of those. She said, drop me here 
drive on slowly, but not too slow so as not to attract police attention, circle back from time to time. This will take at least an hour. So she then turned and disappeared into the darkness under an awning. So I began, I pulled away and began to circle. So I decided on a four block area. And I I paused occasionally as if parking and then I moved on if I saw any headlights approaching it at a distance or any lights going on in the house that would indicate or a building that would indicate that somebody was alarmed at a car stopping in front. So, um, uh, so I, uh, I rec- I began thinking, what am I going to say if I'm stopped by a policeman? So I started rehearsing one excuse after another that I might tell a, a cop if I got stopped. But nothing I came up with sounded convincing because it wasn't a residential area. There were occasional houses that looked as though people might be living in them. But on the whole, these were warehouses and other and garages and things like that. So... Um, so I couldn't claim to be visiting somebody or going home. Uh, so I really was up against it when it came to an excuse. And two blocks behind me, as I glanced back, I, I got a flash of light and looked back, and my heart jumped into my throat, uh, and it was a car at a stop sign perpendicular to the street I was on, two blocks behind me. And my heart jumped into my throat when he turned into my street. And uh, the markings on the car uh, told me that he was a he was a cop. As he turned the corner under the street light, I could see that. So my blood began to beat against my eardrums. But fortunately, he followed. He came in my direction. But fortunately, he turned off after traveling a block toward me. And I was cruising along pretty slowly. Uh, so he only got within a block of me. And he, he, I figured, well, maybe he's circling a certain area, but not the same one I've chosen. So I heaved a great sigh of relief. But it took me half an hour to stop shaking anyway. And no other police patrol uh, drove by or near me during that time, but I circled here and there coming back after the first 45 minutes and at 15-minute intervals after that to see if Millie were waiting. And I began to really panic after the first full hour with no sign of her and began to think, oh, my goodness, what if the doctor bungled the procedure? What if, what if she hemorrhaged and died? Would anyone come to tell me? And after two hours, I was in a near panic when I, uh, I coasted by and saw a flash of white in the darkness under that awning. The white flash uh, turned out to be Millie's light dress as she lurched toward me. Uh, she was very unsteady on her feet. I stopped the car and jumped out and flung open the rear passenger door and helped her into the back seat where she could lie down during that four-hour trip that would follow back to Iowa City. So the whole trip back was was very harrowing, I guess is the word. Millie, who uh, was stoic anyway from uh, suffering all her life, barely spoke, but she gritted her teeth and occasionally allowed a, a moan to come through those teeth. And when she did speak, she told me, that the the uh, operation was done without anesthesia since she had to be on her feet and on her way immediately afterwards. And uh, the baby was severed from the placenta, so she would pass the four-month-old fetus sometime later, perhaps that night. We both we were both hoping and praying that she that uh, it would not be before we got to, back to Iowa City to the house. So we arrived shortly after four in the morning, and I helped Millie up the stairs and into bed, and then I returned 
as silently as I could down the creaking stairway to my room. The next evening, she said that she had lost a baby earlier that day, and she wept. I've been very thankful that Roe v. Wade, from 1973 on, has given women the legal right to have abortions in cases of emergency that are not cases of rape, incest, or when the mother's life is in danger, which actually it might have been in that case. Sure. Oh, what a what a story. I mean, every time I hear you tell the story, and I've heard it from you before, I just get shivers. I mean, this is... Uh, wow. I mean, I, I, you know, for all these years later, the ter- it, and I'm sure it has an effect on you your whole life. Yes. So having had, from personal experience, the kind of tortures that might be inflicted on uh, on poor women like, like Millie uh, and, and other women who... Uh, who might have a, a house full of children and her husband has left her or died or been killed uh, and simply cannot afford to raise another child, but she's pregnant. Uh, I know from my own experience uh, how how they would suffer if we return to the, what I consider, barbaric past. I agree wholeheartedly that abortion is odious and horrible, and in a perfect world, in a paradise, it it shouldn't be necessary. But unfortunately, humans are human, and it is necessary in cases like Millie's and many, many others. So I, as, although I am a Catholic, I am a Catholic for choice. As as we just finished telling that story, uh, Doc, I mean, it's I'm sure people all over, uh, you know, are going to have mixed feelings. I think a lot of people that listen to to your show and listen to what we've been doing here, uh, I think I think that the people that listen to to this particular show and this radio show and podcast, many of them are going to agree with you uh, on on the issue of choice, but. If there are people out there, and again, I'm not trying to push one stance or, or, or another, but your Millie story basically is the perfect example, a very uh, horrible, terrible, tragic situation where it would be very hard for somebody to say uh, that Millie was wrong with anything that she did. It would be much more difficult for me to think that anybody would say young Florence is, I, I would love to give young, go back in time and give young Florence a big hug and uh, because I'm sure that was a conflicting situation. Uh, am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to get arrested? And am, right. I do, am I doing the right thing? I'm, I'm pretty certain you were convinced you were doing the right thing morally. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't have done it unless I thought it was the right thing to do. Clear, clearly right, the right thing even though it was against the law, and I was always brought up to obey the law and uh, and to be a good citizen in, in every way possible. But being a good citizen, I thought at the time, included helping Millie. <laughs> yeah, just am- amazing. Uh, did you tell your parents? Oh, yes, I told them afterwards, cer- certainly. I didn't tell them before. Did they uh, guess? Because there was no time, really, there was no time to, uh, to uh, call anybody uh, well, I, I suppose I could have, but it was the rest of the day. Millie came to me in, uh, let's say, around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. Or, no, it was earlier, but it took four hours to drive over there, so uh, we had to be gone by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, certainly maybe a little before. And uh, so there wasn't much time to be calling around and getting other people's opinions on this matter. So I just went with my own sense of obligation and and justice, my own sense of justice. Uh, and by the way, uh, I, I want to share with people what Margaret Atwood had to say. Uh, I have her article, which is very, very short, um, right on screen here, and I would like to read it Please, yeah. because it adds it adds to the 
the whole picture here. Uh, she says, nobody likes abortion even when safe and legal. It's not what any woman would choose for a happy time on Saturday night, but nobody likes women bleeding to death on the bathroom floor from illegal abortions either. What to do? Perhaps a different way of approaching the question would be to ask, what kind of country do you want to live in? One in which every individual is free to make decisions concerning his or her health and body, or one in which half the population is free and the other half is enslaved. Women who cannot make their own decisions about whether or not to have babies are enslaved because the state claims ownership of their bodies and the right to dictate the use to which their bodies must be put. The only similar circumstances for men is conscription into, the, into an army. In both cases, there is risk to the individual's life, but an army conscript is at least provided with food, clothing, and lodging. Even criminals in prisons have a right to those things. If the state is mandating enforced childbirth, why should it not pay for prenatal care, for the birth itself, for postnatal care, and for babies who are not sold off to richer families for the cost of bringing up the child? And if the state is very fond of babies, why not honor the women who have the most babies by respecting them and lifting them out of poverty? If women are providing a needed service to the state, albeit against their wills, surely they should be paid for their labor. If the goal is more babies, I'm sure many women would oblige if properly recompensed. Otherwise, they're inclined to follow the natural law. Placental mammals will abort in the face of resource scarcity. But I doubt that the state is willing to go so far as to provide the needed resources. Instead, it just wants to reinforce the usual cheap trick, force women to have babies and then make them pay and pay and pay. As I said, slavery. If one chooses to have a baby, that is, of course, a different matter. The baby is a gift given by life itself. But to be a gift, a thing must be freely given and freely received. A gift can also be rejected. A gift that cannot be rejected is not a gift, but a symptom of tyranny. We say that women give birth, and mothers who have chosen to be mothers do give birth and feel it as, as a, and feel it as a gift. But if they have not chosen, birth is not a gift they give. It is an extortion from them against their wills. No one is forcing women to have abortions. No one either should force them to undergo childbirth. Enforce childbirth if you wish, but at least call it call that enforcing by what it is. It is slavery. The claim to own and control another's body and to profit by that claim. Wow. Wow. And, and who was that again? That is Margaret Atwood. She has written some of the, the most brilliant books in the 20th century. The Handmaid's Tale was the title, the actual title of that, uh, of that first book that I don't think it was the first one she wrote, but it was the first one that burst on the scene and uh, shocked everybody. And, and I even, uh, it was prescribed as reading for my freshman class when I first started teaching at Trinity University. Uh, and Margaret Atwood was a guest on campus. Uh, she was really quite something, is, obviously, is quite something, and a very keen thinker, too. So, uh, so I do recommend her books to you if you haven't read any. The Handmaid's Tale should be the first one you read, uh, but there are many others. You, you know, let me let me ask you something. You've given us some timeline here. Of course, the Millie story. Uh, you were 21 years old uh, yeah. when, when young Florence uh, were uh, was going through this. Uh, when did you first hear the the expression or the the word the concept? When did you first understand the concept of abortion? Pretty late, probably. <laughs> I probably was uh, in my upper teens before 
before I knew anything about it. And I, it was probably through reading, uh, reading something in the newspaper, I imagine, some case uh, that had been uh, scandalous in the neighborhood or something like that. So I was, I imagine I didn't know anything about it until I was around 18. Amazing. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. Amazing. I, what, what would you recommend at this point? And again, I'm not, I, I, I'm not so keen on telling uh, five-year-olds about, about sex in general, you know, explaining sex right. or homosexuality or whatever. And I'm all for, uh, you know, any, everyone to pursue their own choices in, in life and, and to, uh, to be who they are inside and all of that. I'm, I'm very progressive when it comes to all of that. Uh, but when, when would you recommend someone telling their daughter about abortion? Uh, it should be fairly early uh, because, you know, you never know when, when a, a young girl will, will decide to have sex for the first time. Right. Yeah, well, I think it, actually I may have learned earlier than 18 because I began menstruating at 14. Uh, I, I guess I was lucky because I think women uh, are menstruating at ever earlier times, such as 10 and 11 these days, which I find shocking. Right. But uh, but still, I think once that happens to the girl and she is now ready uh, to, uh, she's equipped anyway, physically equipped, uh, to have a baby, I think that is a time to talk about this entire uh, subject of sexuality, uh, pregnancy, what to, uh, what happens during pregnancy, what what terrible things can happen during pregnancy? You know what what happens if the baby uh, is deformed in some way uh, that would inhibit the baby's ability to thrive, uh, and so on. All of those things ought to be discussed with the child. Maybe not all at once, but certainly uh, in in those uh, in those early years when the when the child has become a woman, whether psychologically a woman or not, I think the ones who start menstruating at 10 would be a little bit, uh, it would be hard for them maybe to to grasp uh, the, the enormity uh, of, of the possible consequences of getting pregnant, of having sex and, uh, and so forth, unprotected sex. And even protected sex is not always a, a, a total... Uh, a, a total hindrance to becoming pregnant. Amazing. Uh, what you know? What a what a subject, and and uh, it, it's it, it's just amazing that we are dealing with this now. We are uh, we are dealing with this now. I've um, I've never thought, and I, I feel foolish in a sense. I never thought that the Supreme Court would overrule Roe v. Wade. I just thought it was right. here forever. And when when people you know make uh, comments that we got to make sure that you have the the proper um, judges on and uh, and you you know you can't let the uh, conservative judges or the pro life judges uh, have have a dominant um, uh, number have a dominant force on this you know you would uh, I, I I would think you know one of them that you know that people are counting on would back out. And uh, and do it, and you know, I, I just never. I, it's foolish. It's very naive of me, uh, in retrospect, to, uh, to 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 think about this. But I I really never thought that we would be in this situation, that this would happen. Right. I, I mean, I just never, I just never thought it would happen. And I'm I'm trying to be as unbiased on this as possible. I'm just saying, as an independent, as a moderate, as someone who, and by the way. Uh, I, I headed up a party that was neither pro-choice, if you could possibly believe this, that was neither pro-choice nor pro-life. And uh, what we said is that a political party shouldn't be telling a candidate how they should, what position they should take on serious issues such as school prayer, abortion, um, rights. Uh, you know, it, it, that the party should just be a platform. This was our take. How, uh, the party should just be a platform for candidates to run, and they should speak directly to the American people. 
and the American mm -hmm. people, they'll have to answer. So sometimes people would say, so in other words, they're not going to ever have to answer that question. And we say, no, they're not going to. Of course, they're going to have to answer the question, but not to a political leader, not to a special interest group, but to the American right. people. And that's mm -hmm. that's how we handled that issue. And I thought that was a departure from what everybody else ever, uh, ever did. And uh, this way we had. We had pro-choice people, we had pro-life people, but it didn't matter. It's none of, we. what we would say is it's none of our damn business. What yes. everybody thinks of uh, abortion, they'll talk about that with their rabbi, with their priest, with their uh, their pastor, with their family members, with their, with their friends, but, but not a political leader. Right, right. Yes, uh, well, my priests were Jesuits for for a, a long time, 15 years or so, until they had to pull out of San Antonio because they just didn't have enough staff. Uh, that was also Spanish-speaking, English and Spanish. They needed them all in Latin America, where they have missions. Uh, and so uh, our church has been left high and dry. We, we do have, uh, we have a priest, but he is a priest of three churches. And so he's heavily overworked, and he is a parish priest of uh, a very, uh, let's say, middle of middle of the road preparation. Uh, not to say mediocre, but middle of the road pre preparation. Uh, he, of course, is a Sp mainly a Spanish speaker, so he his English is is uh, uh, is a little stiff and uh, and unwieldy. But he, he gets the job done, but he is such a far cry from the Jesuits. But at the time, the Jesuits, uh, the question did come up uh, about abortion and the morality thereof, and they were obliged, of course, by church doctrine to say that uh, they were all pro-life. But uh, one of them... It was very hard for him to maintain his argument, I could tell. Uh, <laughs> he never in, and I, I didn't push him too hard because I knew he was up against it. But but it was clear that he had uh, grave doubts about uh, precisely what uh, Margaret Atwood says, uh, the enslavement of women to the state. Uh, is what it amounts to because the state uh, would mandate um, uh, might uh, I might have to say the state mandates uh, that all pregnant women um, bear the baby to term and uh, uh, and, and, and thereby enslaving them uh, so uh, my argument was reducing them to be, to being less than human because human beings uh, are supposed to have the freedom of choice uh, and in this case, that freedom is taken away from women only <laughs> yeah. uh, in that in that situation. Uh, so uh, I mean, even the clergy is uh, hard hard pressed to make the argument that women must have the baby once they're pregnant, and there is no no uh, question about it. And the thing that makes me so angry is. Uh, among other things, one thing that makes me angry is that uh, here you have a human being who has been raised by her parents, educated, uh, brought up to be somebody important in society. She's contributing in one way or another to the welfare of of humanity, and here she is caught and her life, this adult's life, this finished human being's life, is worth less. My uh, Jesuit, one of my favorite Jesuit priests, who is no more, he has passed on to his reward. But uh, we talked about abortion and about pro-life uh, uh, situation, the church's position on uh, pro-life. And, of course, he never betrayed the doctrine that he was mandated to defend by the church. But it was very hard for him, it was clear, to make the arguments. So it seems to me that even the clergy has doubts about an absolute ban on abortion. 
because they they know of all people uh, who sit and listen to people's confessions they know how difficult it is for women who have unexpected and unwanted pregnancies and who are they have to counsel them to carry the baby to term uh, and uh, and very often they they would not do so were they free to make a choice i can i intuit this I was certainly never told that by any one of those wonderful Jesuit priests, but uh, but there it is. Yeah, just and amazing. Yes, yes, there it is. I mean, everybody who has any sense, any um, any understanding of human nature, and and the variety of situations that women, in particular, who are underpaid and uh, and often abused and uh, abandoned with children and so on. I mean, the role they have to hold in life is much more difficult than than the uh, the role that men are served are serving. And uh, uh, despite that, uh, women are, of course, in in our religion. You you Frank are also uh, Catholic. Uh, we both know that. Uh, uh, that women are being told by the priest that no matter what, they have to carry that baby to term. You know, my uh, my mother grew up in Catholic school. I did up until a certain point, till first through sixth grade, and then beyond that, a couple of yeah, I moved around a lot, but a couple of Catholic high schools. But the <coughs> my mother went to a boarding school, a Catholic boarding school in Danville, Pennsylvania. And they were being taught, the young women in, in high school were being taught by the nuns uh, right. about sex. And uh, anything that they ever heard about sex was taught to them by women who most likely knew less about sex than anybody, you know. And, yeah, and, exactly. You know, mm -hmm. so they were, they, it, was, it was kind of a, a, a unique situation. And... And you got to believe the the Catholic Church in, in situations like that had a captive audience, and had a captive audience of uh, of young women with all types of questions and curiosities, and I, you know, and again, I'm certainly not putting down my mother's generation or my mother's, um, you know, my mother's uh, way where she of learning, but but she learned from nuns any little thing that she knew about sex. She learned from nuns. By the way, she had a very right. unsuccessful marriage. Other than producing two boys, myself and my my older brother, um, it was a uh, it was a terrible marriage that ended, uh, you know, somewhere really when I was about twelve years old, and um, and uh, my mother never recovered from that. And I I've got to wonder if uh, if she had some guidance and i don't know what kind of guidance you would get back then but if there was some kind of other guidance other than that from the nuns and and the priest at a boarding school um and her mother who wouldn't you know who, i mean she would you know uh just basically say it's the wife's obligation to you know to, to the husband to have sex uh, would be the 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 situation but um there there was no such thing as sex education in Catholic right. homes there, and I can't imagine, I can't imagine that, that there was any thought given to reproductive rights, um, whether it, just that it was evil or that it was the devil or that it was, you know, something along those lines. It was murder, just pure murder. So um, the generation of folks that, um, that were coming out of, that were uh, coming out of those days, whether they were in boarding schools or not, um, I, you know, in, until the 60s, until the 70s, when the sexual revolution came, um, it was just the dark ages. And, and again, I say that we're trying to be down the middle, um, you know, journalistically or whatever you want to call it. But your thoughts on that and, and what, what we're doing here with the young women that are coming into uh, their, their adulthood and, uh, and their adult bodies, um, I, I mean, uh, what, what kind of... Um, what kind of thoughts are you? Uh, do you have on them, and and what this decision will 
will do. I, I think it's going to verbalize, but it, it, the dialogue that is going back and forth will help these young women make, uh, make decisions for themselves where they are, pro-choice, pro-life. And, um, and, and I think the, the more dialogue on it, the better, quite frankly. I agree. I agree. The more that it's out there being discussed, uh, the less likely it is into adulthood without knowing, <laughs> knowing the scores uh, about the human uh, reproduction, sexuality, and the whole thing, because uh, uh, it's certainly going to be discussed publicly, just as we're doing now. And uh, I, I, actually, I think everybody, uh, all girls, were sheltered as if they were not human, uh, and it couldn't it couldn't cope with the knowledge uh, of what is going to happen to them on their wedding night, uh, and uh, and so uh, the first coitus would come as a huge shock and disillusionment, no doubt, in many cases. Uh, because the the opening uh, act is is fairly violent, it, it requires some tearing of flesh, yeah. uh, and uh, so it isn't the most pleasant thing in the world. And the the poor women have uh, traditionally, pro- whether Protestant or Catholic, uh, have been totally unprepared for it. Uh, so I'm hoping <laughs> that the one good thing uh, about this whole controversy that's uh, uh, going on right now will be that thanks to all the publicity, these girls will learn something. So they will know what to expect. Yeah. And if yeah. don't, uh, if it's not actually openly discussed, at least they will have enough information to ask questions. And if they ask the right people the questions, they will get answers. Yeah, uh, it's just—it's it, amazing. It, it's such a—it's such a heavy subject. We can go off in ten different directions, um, and you know, uh, and I, I imagine we will as this uh, as this develops. Uh, in closing, what's what's the next step? What's the next big um, uh, step forward? I mean, we're going to see protests. We're going to see uh, activism for for those who. Um, who were hoping, you know, and, and we're talking Democrats here, d- that that were getting ready to uh, be slaughtered in the uh, in the midterm elections. You know, not so fast, maybe. And by the way, I should say that last conversation we had before this leak, you and I uh, both predicted that in June. I well, I think I said, and then and then we discussed it a bit. But if people look back, uh, we were prophetic. Um, we said in June that this might become an issue, and if it does, it's going to awaken up, uh, awaken a sleeping giant in the Democratic Party, and maybe even you know Republican and Independent women that are going to come out and vote for Democratic candidates, and maybe we're not going to see as one-sided elections in the midterms that we thought. And and I'll tell you what, some of the early protests that you see are, are massive. Yes. Uh, well, my last word is simply that maybe, <laughs> maybe there will be a chance for the uh, Democratic candidates thanks to this. Uh, although I'm sure the Republicans are crying foul, and uh, and they, their main focus is on the person who leaked uh, that opinion, uh, Alito's opinion, which was of course. Uh, a no-no in the Supreme Court that any such thing should be leaked and never has been before, and this is a traitorous deed, and that person ought to be uh, drawn and quartered, and 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 uh, so that's the Republican position. They're not uh, talking about the uh, uh, about the issue so much because the issue itself. Well, we've been we've spent the hour talking about the issue itself. <laughs> Uh, and it, it is something uh, the Republicans are all for enslaving women. There's uh, there's no way around that. <laughs> yeah. Um, my choice, my body. Uh, the cartoon in the paper this morning was precisely showing two people, the woman holding up a, a sign that said, my choice, my body. And the man coming up to her said, are you talking about abortion or about vaccination? Oh, wow. Right. So, yeah, so, yeah Republican women uh, are all holding up the sign, and yet uh, they do not realize it also applies to abortion. So there we go. That's my last word. 
<laughs> amazing. It's, it's just an amazing turn of events in history. It's a historic moment, regardless of what side of the aisle uh, anyone is on. And um, I, I just it, amazing. And and uh, the person who leaked this doc in closing, I'll just say the person who leaked it, if there were a lawyer, if it was a law clerk, they'll lose their law license. But but they'll be remembered as a uh, as a heroic figure on the left from the left. Yes. Uh, well, yes. You know, certainly... And as a diabolical one on the right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. And the, and the, the Republican people are going to want to uh, want to strangle this uh, this person and the uh, and maybe literally, too. They've got to watch themselves. And then the the, uh, the folks on the left are going to hold them, put them on the, the shoulder and he him or her on their shoulder and uh, and then move on from uh, from there. But, Doc, what a what a story, what an issue. It is uh, it, it is massive. It is a massive um, movement on both sides. And this is that heavyweight fight people have been talked about and waiting for years. And I don't want to minimize it by by making it sound like a sporting event. But it is a serious, serious battle that uh, that we're about. To it certainly have. is. Well, you know, the Republicans would have a better argument if they also took care of the child after birth. Right. But the Republicans are, on the whole, against uh, subsidies to help uh, poor women raise the child, child subsidies. Um, uh, these, uh, the, uh, uh, the institutions in Texas to take care of orphaned and uh, and uh, anyway children who are unwanted are terrible uh, and rife with child abuse I mean sexual abuse of children and trafficking and all the rest of it which uh, indicates that uh, the people who are in charge of that are not pro-life once once it's out of the womb they're pro-life up to the point of birth and then the the child can just fend for itself after that, uh, and and that is true generally of uh, of the human life after birth. It's the fetus that reigns, and is more more than the grown woman. Uh, so, uh, well, there's another last word. Well, well, Doc, listen. There's a lot of people that are, are saying amen to what you said, and there's a lot of people that are saying string her up. String her up. Yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes I'll probably get some death threats now. No, I, I think the people listening, for the most part, I, I think you have pro, pro-choice pro uh, voters listening, listeners listening. But, again, look, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a massive issue. It is, uh, it, it is the, the biggest issue right now in, uh, in the world yeah. more than anything, and it's uh, front and center. And we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg is the author of 16 books and so much more. What a resume she has. Ironically, ironically, her latest is called The Choice, having nothing to do, nothing to do at all with abortion, a uh, historical novel, and it is, uh, it is tremendous. Please get it. And Before the Alamo was the, the book right before that. But The Choice is her latest, having nothing to do with the issue of women's reproductive rights. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show.